what I would like to do today is to explore the idea of divine law. Uh, and the idea of divine law has been described as the idea that the norms that guide human actions should somehow be rooted in the divine realm. And that's a concept that's common to, to Judaism, to Christianity, and to Islam, but there's really nothing inevitable about this idea. You don't find it in Chinese civilization, for example. Um, they've never thought of laws being connected with the divine. And in ancient Near Eastern cultures, the gods are said to authorize kings and to confer upon them the wisdom and the justice that's essential to their rule and their lawmaking, but the laws of the land are produced by the kings themselves. And Hammurabi's code is Hammurabi's code. I wrote these words, he says, on this stele. So a robust notion of divine law, in which divinity applies in some way to the law itself, appears for the first time in history in two places, in ancient Greece and in the Hebrew Bible. But the two uh, differ. To the extent that they conceive of the divine in radically different ways, their notions of divine law are radically different as well. And when Alexander conquers the eastern end of the Mediterranean, these two very different conceptions of divine law collided, and frankly, we've been dealing with the fallout for about 2,500 years. Um, so what I'd like to do is to first describe these two different um, conceptions of divine law. I'm going to take about 20 minutes and trace the Greco-Roman view and the biblical view of divine law. And then I'll take about 10 minutes to describe what I call the cognitive dissonance that occurs in the encounter um, of these two different views. And I'll review the attempt of some ancient Jews to resolve this cognitive dissonance. Um, because I think it's important when we want to understand the rabbis to understand what was going on in the world around them and before them. So I'm going to say a little bit about Philo um, in, in that section. And then we're going to turn to the rabbis. So that'll take about 30, 35 minutes. Then we'll turn to the rabbis, and I have some sources from you for you. Don't panic. You're not supposed to get through them all. A chunk of them are from the article that you read previously. Um, but just to make sure that we can get through them, what I might have you do is um, I'll split you up and have certain people deal with the text in one, and some deal with the text in four, and some deal with five. And if everybody could look at six, because those are great texts, then that would be great. And then we'll come back and look at uh, the ones in number seven. But I'll review all that for you towards the end. But what we're going to be um, paying particular attention to, for lack of time, is um, we're going to be looking at the dueling characterizations of these two conceptions of divine law. They're dueling characterizations of what it might mean to say that divine law is true, right? The truth about divine law. So, one note before I begin is that in uh, Greco-Roman sources, we're going to see a distinction, a clear conceptual distinction between divine law and human law, right? And the way they will characterize one will determine how they characterize the other. They characterize the two of them in terms of and in contrast with one another. So to talk about divine law in the Greco-Roman world means we have to talk a little bit about human law, positive law, by contrast. And that's not going to be true for the biblical tradition, where the divine law is represented also as the law for the political community, the Torah of Moses. So first we turn to the, oh, and I have another, because you don't have enough handouts. Um, there's about 30 here. I didn't know how many to make, but this will just help you follow along um, where I'm headed here. So... Um, turning first to the Greco-Roman conception of divine law, where, um, where we'll focus really on two major discourses. There are lots of ways they talk about divine law in the Greco-Roman world, but they are going to be two that interest us. And the first emphasizes um, divine law as a kind of truth that corresponds to what really is out there somehow in the universe. And the second is a discourse of the law that associates the law with virtue, right? So law, divine law as truth and divine law as virtue. Those are the two things I'm going to do a real rapid thumbnail sketch um, for you. So the core idea of Greco-Roman natural law theory is that there exists in nature, 
It exists in nature, a standard for right and wrong. It's not mere convention, what humans have agreed upon. It's an independent standard that really exists in nature against which the conventional or positive laws, human laws, can be measured. So the pre-Socratics in the 6th century BCE, they introduced this idea of non-conventional standards that are embedded and discoverable in nature. Philosophers began to search for independent universal um, laws of the social order that were on a par with the mathematical laws or laws of music or astronomy. Um, Heraclitus of Ephesus posited some sort of universal reason. The word he used was logos that unified uh, the cosmos, it governed the unified cosmos, and it nourished human laws. Well, we're going to jump from the pre-Socratics right to a dialogue that was attributed to Plato, although probably wasn't written by him, but in antiquity it was thought to have been written by him, and it's a dialogue called the Minos. And in this uh, this dialogue, um, the author asserts an intelligible, natural standard for distinguishing genuine law from false law. So these are all just kind of charted on your your hand out there to keep it all on track for you. Um, So in this dialogue, Socrates provides a realist definition of law. That is to say, it's a true opinion or a discovery of what really is. That's how he defines it in the Minos. As opposed to the person he's speaking with, um, who has a more conventional understanding of law as just the agreed upon opinion, community opinion um, of a city's citizens. So this definition in the Minos of law, of natural law, as the discovery or of, of law being, it should be the discovery of what really is, entails the further view that the law doesn't change because what really is doesn't change. Right? Human legislators, of course, don't always succeed in discovering what really is um, and, they, uh, and therefore um, they often make laws that will be different at different times. So since the real law, the, nature, the law of nature itself, never changes, the shifting legislation that's posited by human communities, which we call positive law or conventional law, isn't strictly speaking law. We only use the word law because we don't have a better one to use. So we find already in Greco-Roman sources that the word law is used in a couple of different senses. There's the true natural law. And then there's human positive legislation, which isn't properly speaking law. It strives to be, but it fails to be the true law. And it was the Stoics who develop a full-blown theory of natural law, and they're the first to call it divine law, theos nomos, divine law. Um, And it refers to natural law, because for the Stoics, God is not distinct from nature. Um, And so the rational order, or the eternal reason of nature, is none other than the mind of God, or the eternal reason of God. So divine law, for the Stoics, when they use that word, that term, it's a metaphor for natural law. And they draw a sharp distinction between what they call unwritten divine law and written positive or human laws. The unwritten character of divine law is critically important to them. A law that is written by definition has to be human. Um, so the Stoic view is that the divine law cannot, is not a code of written rules or prohibitions. It's just reason. It's order. It's unchanging, essential, universal, rational order of the cosmos that transcends the particulars of human existence. That's the notion of divine law that was circulating in the Greco-Roman world in which ancient Jews would soon find themselves after the conquest of Alexander. The first century BCE philosopher Cicero, um, who was also a political theorist, he articulated a version of Stoic natural law theory which spread throughout the Mediterranean and really would spread through Western Europe. It's pretty much the definition that will reach Aquinas and then Aquinas will tinker with it and that's 
the view that we have in the West. And I say we advisedly because you are more influenced by this than you would realize. I hope by the end of this session you will realize how influenced by this you are. So according to Cicero, the universal rational law of nature is everywhere the same, he says, and unchangeably binding upon all peoples and nations. For Cicero, there is only one true law, namely right reason, which is in accordance with nature, applies to all men, and is unchangeable and eternal. Listen to these adjectives that are being used to describe divine law. To invalidate it by human legislation, he says, is never morally right, nor is it permissible to restrict or annul it. <coughs> its authority is justified on internal rational grounds. That's important. Its authority is justified by its character or quality as utterly rational. That's what makes it have authority. That's why it claims our fidelity, its rational character or quality, and not on the external coercive power of a sovereign will. The rules and prohibitions of political states which are written down, he says, are not in a genuine sense law. They are simply positive legislation invented by humans and coercively enforced by a sovereign will to secure the basic conditions of a peaceful common life certain social, political, material ends, and so on. They don't necessarily deal with the truth, on the one hand, or even the cultivation of a virtuous or or, uh, rational character, on the other hand, which is the goal of the true natural law. So we have the Stoic philosophy of the Roman period now, and that's going to be the period in which rabbinic Judaism will emerge, um, promoting this important dichotomy, this dichotomous thinking. On the one hand, natural divine law, which is a rational order that's unwritten, eternal, and unchanging and universal. It's static in its perfection insofar as its rational truth. On the other hand, quite separate from that, is positive law, concrete rules and prohibitions posited by human beings, delivered in written form, in words and sentences, enforced by coercive authority, particular to a given state, subject (coughs) to change and evolution over time, and not really reflecting any kind of metaphysical or ontological truth or what really is out there. So, again, this first Greco-Roman conception of divine law that I'm describing emphasizes the divine law's truth value and its universal and unchanging rational character. There's another um, discourse within the Greco-Roman tradition which is focused on the fact that politics was connected for many Greco-Roman thinkers not just with um, the philosophical quest for truth but also um, ethics and the quest for virtue. Um, politics was considered to be an activity that aimed at the highest human good and cultivating human, uh, the highest human virtue. So there's another way of talking about law which focuses less on truth and thinks more about law, divine law and, and human law, um, as leading to virtue, whether they can or, or cannot lead to virtue. And some of these philosophers express serious doubt about whether the, the norms of right and wrong that are found in nature can ever be codified by human beings into exceptionless rules that will lead to human virtue and justice. Can we really figure that out by looking at nature? Can we really figure out codifiable norms of right and wrong that would be exceptionless and always true and would always lead to virtue and justice? Plato was very, very pessimistic about the ability of written human laws to enact the divine laws, immutable standards of right and wrong. He wrote this, Law could never accurately embrace what is best and most just for all at the same time, and so prescribe what is best. For the dissimilarities among human beings and their actions, and the fact that practically nothing in human affairs ever remains stable, prevent any sort of expertise whatsoever from making any simple decision in any sphere that covers all cases and will last for all time. 
So right and wrong, he says, depend on the particular circumstances of a case. No one human law can always capture all of those circumstances and ensure justice always. It's very hard, therefore, to be ruled well by law. And we're better off, he says, being ruled by, if you know Plato, philosophers, right? Sages, wise people who can, in fact, assess particular circumstances, but also have wisdom and knowledge of eternal verities and virtues and can therefore approximate divine standards of justice and virtue much better than to be ruled by a fixed law. And other Greek thinkers also praise the living law of kings. It's more flexible, it's more attuned to justice than what they call the dead letter of written codes. So normative authority should be vested in wisdom or reason rather than the codified generalizations of written law. This is the way people were talking in the third second, first centuries BCE and into the first and second centuries CE when the rabbinic movement is going to be emerging. So in Plato's Republic, which of course had a very long life in the West, the only true regime is the rule by the gods. And failing that then, rule by philosopher kings, their rational capacity is perfected to a degree, uh, to the degree that they like the gods can perceive eternal verities. But Plato says the trouble is we live in a fallen state. The gods don't rule us any longer as they did in the past mythological golden age of Kronos. And philosophers committed to truth and a knowledge of eternal verities are very hard to come by. So Plato asserts in the laws that we're forced to make do with written laws rather than philosophers. And he explicitly marks this as a second best option. The law strives to be what he said, in quotes, an imitation of the truth. But it is a resented necessity that takes place under the sign of shame. Indeed, the rule of law represents a failure of education, he says, because a truly rational individual, well-educated, can grasp eternal verities himself and doesn't need the laws. Such an individual, he says, would not need laws which would rule over himself. For no law and no ordering of things is superior to knowledge. But as things are, since it is nowhere to be found at all, except to some small extent, for that reason we must choose the second option, the ordering of laws, which looks and pays regard to what is for the most part, but is powerless to cover everything. So here again, conventional laws or positive laws, imperfections, lie in their inflexibility, their inability to adjust as needed to ensure justice in all of the widely varying circumstances of human life. So the legislator who cleaves to written law and precedent without employing what the, what the Greeks call phronesis, practical reasoning, in order to achieve the virtue that's the goal of law, this is a negative thing. You need to apply phronesis, they said. Just as a doctor will prescribe diverse treatments in diverse situations, in order to bring different people to the very same constant standard of health, right? But to bring this person to health, you need a different prescription than what you need to bring this person to the same standard of health. Legislators also have to be able to formulate specific laws and remedies in particular cases if they want to achieve um, a single constant universal standard of justice. Um, that was Aristotle's view, actually. So for Plato and Aristotle, human laws, now I'm talking about human laws, Human laws can be expressions of reason, but that doesn't make them unchangeable. Reason sometimes dictates that even the most carefully framed human laws might need to be adjusted or changed according to circumstance. 
Okay, so I took you on a whirlwind tour of these two different conceptions of law in the Greco-Roman tradition. They're going to be important for us when we come to talk about the rabbis. But again, according to one discourse, and, and this is dominant by the time of the later Stoics, and it became very popularized, actually, in the, Western, in the east, west, eastern end of the Mediterranean. Um, one view is that um, natural law is a rational order or logos or truth that doesn't change. It's inflexible. Human legislation that varies from place to place and misses the eternal verities of the natural law is really not properly called law. And then there's a second competing kind of discourse within Greco-Roman thought that focuses on virtue rather than truth and draws on Plato's idea that human laws, again, are inevitably inadequate just as they can't attain to the truth of, those, uh, of the natural law. They also are inadequate for ensuring virtue and justice that the divine law would ensure. The best, although still inadequate, human law should be flexible, however, and accommodating of fluctuating circumstances in order to ensure the most virtuous behavior in any instance. <coughs> we kind of have a tension. On the one hand, human laws are criticized because they change and vary, and they're not constant and true, like the natural law would be. And on the other hand, you have Plato saying that the law, human laws need to adjust if they're going to achieve justice and virtue in individual circumstances. So what about the Bible? <coughs> well, <coughs> if in the prominent Greco-Roman discourse, Divine law is divine because of a quality that's inherent in it, right? It's rational character. Um, biblical divine law is divine because of its author, not because of a quality inherent in it. It's divine because it's authored by, it's the command of a deity. In the biblical tradition, divine law isn't really represented as the expression of an impersonal, natural reason or a divine logos, a rational order of the cosmos. <coughs> divine law is a body of legislation rules um, emanating from a divine being and the expression of that deity's will. Its authority is grounded not so much in its rational character but in its commanding source. Right? Exodus 24, 3 and 4. Moses went and repeated to the people all the commands of God and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice saying all the things that God has commanded we will do. Moses then wrote down all the commands of God. So divine law is divinely revealed and for the first time in history written legislation consisting of specific and detailed legal rulings and teachings authored by a divine being for a particular community. This was pretty unusual. And the Greco-Roman distinction between unwritten divine law and written uh, human law just doesn't obtain here. Moreover, because the divine law in the Bible is a positive enactment of the sovereign will, it's changeable. Because that which stems from an act of will can be changed by a subsequent act of will. And we see this frequently in the Bible. When law is conceived as expressing the will of the divine sovereign, then new rules and ordinances can be issued as long as there's some mechanism for continuing access to that divine will. So in biblical times, that's achieved by an oracular procedure, consulting God directly about his will. And there are four cases where Moses says, I don't know what the law is, let me go ask. And he goes and he checks it out with God, and he finds out okay, and now establishes that this will be you know, the law going forward is in the daughters of Zerachachad and so on. Um, and also Deuteronomy 17 also establishes a procedure so that in, uh, in an ongoing way one can discover what the, the law should be. So variability of the divinely given law in response to the circumstances of human life is part and, par part and parcel of the legal process in the biblical legal tradition. And biblical divine law itself contains openly... Um, 
contradictory provisions. Right? Deuteronomy updates and revises laws in Exodus and sometimes does it explicitly for historical reasons. You did that formerly, but now that you're coming into the land, things are different, different new circumstances. You're going to change <coughs> and do the following thing. So, in the dominant biblical discourse, the divine law expresses God's will for a particular people, not universal like the Greco-Roman notion of divine law. It's subject to change through historical time rather than expressing some fixed rational order of a universal, timeless, static nature. But there are are a couple of other things that we should say about biblical divine law because it's just not quite that simple. And um, one characteristic of divine law is signaled by the very word Torah. Right, which means instruction or teaching. Many biblical texts speak about divine law as instruction, not prescriptive rules and commandments, so much as teaching that is designed to inculcate wisdom. Deuteronomy 4, 6. See, I have imparted to you laws and rules, as the Lord my God has commanded me, Moses speaking obviously, for you to abide by in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. Observe them faithfully, for that will be the proof of your wisdom and discernment to other peoples, who on hearing of all these laws will say, surely that great nation is a wise and discerning people. So the laws and rules given by God to Israel are described as wisdom. When Israel observes them, people think that Israel is wise and discerning. And the focus on the rational character of the law is important. It doesn't point to a biblical natural law view, right? It doesn't mean that the Bible thinks that there's some natural law or rational order to the universe. But it's significant that the biblical text does make an effort to represent God's commandments as wise, addressing human beings not as subjects to be commanded, but as rational moral agents to be instructed. So, for example, while it's true that some of the laws take the form of an outright commandment, right, you shall do X, you shall not do Y, and so on, much of the Torah is written in a casuistic form. If X happens, then you should do the following, unless condition A prevails, in which case you should do, you know, this different thing. So that kind of casuistic formulation we know was, was common throughout the ancient Near East, and it was used as part of what is called the wisdom tradition for the training of scribes and scholars and judges. It promotes inductive reasoning and classification and analogical thinking, rational thought, judgment, discernment. So those very formulations themselves suggest that biblical legal writings weren't prescriptive rules to be followed unthinkingly. They were really more instructive training manuals with descriptive examples that were supposed to kind of teach the practical reasoning that's needed to adjudicate justice in real-life situations. Um, And Aristotle himself, interestingly enough, he talks about the legal writings of the ancient Near Eastern world, and he says they they don't write law codes, rules, the way we do. They have descriptive uh, manuals that enunciate general principles rather than and that rely then on the discerning judgment of individuals who've been trained to think about legal cases and principles rather than following a fixed code of law. So this is how Aristotle at the time described the uh, legal traditions of the East. Another literary feature of biblical texts reinforces the idea that the law and its recipients are both rational, and that's the presence of motive clauses in many of the biblical laws that are designed to persuade and to teach. If I'm commanding a servant or an obedient, I don't need to persuade them to do it, I just command them. Uh, I don't need to give them a reason, but many of the biblical laws do contain reasons, as if they are addressed, in fact, to uh, human beings who are capable of moral reasoning and can say, yes, I was a stranger in Egypt, and yes, I understand how that feels, and I should not, in fact, engage in kind of that kind of behavior towards another person. So um, we see reason 
functioning at a high level in biblical law. So to kind of sum up, the, the dominant biblical discourse of divine law, which first of all makes no distinction between divine law and human law, right? There isn't this dichotomy that you have in the Greco-Roman world. Um, this discourse grounds divine law in the sovereign will of the deity rather than in some rational order of nature. It understands that divine law to be allied with virtue. The goal of the law, we didn't talk about this, but the goal of the law is to make the people holy and thus fit for residence in a holy land. They have to eschew certain acts that lead to moral impurities that are incompatible with residing in God's land. Um, so the, the purpose of the law is allied really more with virtue than with truth. Um, and the biblical view is that divine law is flexible because God's will is responsive to a human situation and, and, and historical circumstances. Um, and divine law is also to some extent rational and it can be adapted in response to human argument and entreaty. There are some interesting narrative cases in the Bible where that happens. Or the application of human reason itself tends to lead to new learning and insight. So you have these two roughly contemporaneous and very different ideas of divine law um, that come into intense contact with one another after Alexander's conquest in the late 4th century BCE and the infusion of Hellenistic culture into the region um, of the ancient Near East. Uh, and that Hellenistic culture carried with it uh, many kind of popular and very eclectic versions of the main philosophical, the tenets of the main philosophical schools brought that to the broader Mediterranean world. So the result for Hellenized Jews, and all Jews living in this period were Hellenized, right, in the sense that they were subject to Hellenistic culture one way or another. There were, Hellen there were Hellenized Jews who imbibed Hellenistic values and embraced Hellenistic values and absorbed the Hellenistic dichotomy between natural law and human positive law, and they must have suffered a very severe cognitive dissonance. And this is where the little chart on your handout should help. So this chart contains a list of the characteristic features of divine natural law and human positive law according to the Greco-Roman uh, tradition. All right, so Hellenistic philosophical schools of all stripes bought this, this distinction between divine natural law and all of the characteristics that are listed there. It's universal, it's rational, it is unwritten, it is eternal, and it's unchanging. And it governs the sage without effort because the rational person just sees the rational order of the universe and can align his, beha align his behavior to those rational ends and reach those rational ends and will be just morally virtuous, doesn't actually need any kind of human law at all, right? He just naturally sees it and knows what to do. Um, human positive law is the opposite. It is particular. It's grounded in will rather than reason. It's written down. It's temporary and changeable, and it's flexible. It's superfluous for the wise person. He does the right thing because he sees what the right thing is to do, and he just does it. doesn't need a law to tell him. And it's kind of useless for the fool who's just going to rebel against its strictures anyway. So positive law doesn't have much to recommend it. And what I've done is I've placed an asterisk next to those traits that one could perhaps say <coughs> apply to the Bible's discourse of divine law. And you'll notice that there are asterisks in both columns. It's kind of messy. The Bible portrays divine law as possessing some qualities that, according to Greco-Roman thought, would be associated with natural or divine law. I wouldn't say that it's logos, but it has some rational features, as we've seen. And it's eternal, in some sense, right? in the sense that the, the divine being rep is represented as being eternal, and therefore his law will be eternal. Um, and it addresses people as wise and discerning in many places. But it also possesses some qualities that a Greco-Roman thinker would associate with human or positive law. 
It's not universal. It is addressed quite clearly to a particular people precisely in order to set them off as distinct from other peoples and dedicated to their God, enabling them to live in a particular land in peace and justice. It's grounded in the will of a sovereign authority. It's written and it's flexible and evolving. So the divine law of the biblical tradition has some features of both types of law in Greco-Roman thought, but not all the features of either. So the Greco-Roman dichotomy of divine law and human law just doesn't work for biblical law, and it isn't native to it. These are not helpful categories for understanding the biblical conception of divine law. But this incongruity, this mismatch between the two, I think was troubling to ancient Jews to different degrees and it prompted three different categories of response. I'm going to outline two and then you're going to read about the third one. Okay? So, Jews who imbibed Hellenistic values and a Hellenistic understanding of divine and positive law and who were very proud of their ancient tradition, they wanted it to be respected by those who held Hellenistic values, including themselves, and they confronted a burning question into which category does my tradition fit? Would I want people to think of the Mosaic Law? Do I want myself to think of the Mosaic Law as just another political constitution, a positive law? Or do I want to identify it with the exalted natural law, which is the divine law of Hellenistic thought? And so, of course, some Hellenized Jews aspired to equate the divine law of biblical tradition with the divine law of classical thought. And they worked like crazy to shoehorn the Mosaic Law into that category of natural law rather than positive law, attributing to it the characteristics of natural law that are laid out in the left-hand column of, of that chart. The two clearest examples would be the, the author of the letter of Aristeas and Philo. We're going to just jump right to Philo. Philo, who died in about the year 50, was an Alexandrian Jew who argued that his native constitution, the Mosaic Law, possessed the attributes of Greco-Roman divine natural law. He said, Thus, whoever will carefully examine the nature of the particular enactments will find that they seek to attain to the harmony of the universe and are, agreement, are, and are in agreement with the principles of eternal nature. In fact, he argued not just that the Mosaic Law is in harmony with nature, but that it's identical with the law of nature. And to do that, he mobilizes several themes from Greco-Roman discourse of divine law, and he will show that they're found in the biblical text. He'll highlight those aspects of the biblical text that seem to support those themes, and he will suppress those aspects of the biblical text that don't support those themes. So first he asserts that the Mosaic Law is not particular at all. It is the universal natural law, the nomos tuseos, that was conceived by the Stoics. Even though it's currently in the possession of Israel, it's intended to govern the world city of all humankind. And to support that claim, he ignores the immediate narrative context of the revelation, which is, of course, Sinai, the, um, you know, the revelation of a particular law delivered in a covenant with a particular people. He points in fact, instead to the fact that the story of Israel is embedded in a universal narrative that begins with the creation. The Torah was given in this narrative that begins with creation. It is intended to be the law for all creation. And someday, other nations, he says, who follow their particular and, partic particular and peculiar ways and customs will abandon those and adopt Israel's universal natural law. Second, he was convinced that the Bible contains and conveys philosophical truth. He wrote, in every respect, the holy writings are true. In the poetic work of God, you will not find anything mythical or fictional, but the canons of truth all inscribed. Third, he had a big sticking point with the writtenness, right? Because according to the Stoics, 
Divine law is by definition unwritten. That's okay, he says. The written text of the Mosaic Code is simply a copy of the original unwritten law of nature. And we know this because the patriarchs, he said, observed the Mosaic law before it was given in written form and in full. And they did so because they were sages that possessed rational perfection and therefore they could read it in nature. Those who wish to live, he writes, in accordance with the laws as they stand have no difficult task seeing that the first generations before any at all of the particular statutes was set in writing, they followed the unwritten law with perfect ease, so that one might properly say that the enacted laws are nothing else than memorials of the life of the ancients, preserving for a later generation their actual words and deeds, for they were not scholars or pupils of others, nor did they learn under teachers what was right to say or do. They listened to no voice or instruction but their own, and they gladly accepted conformity with nature, holding that nature itself was, as indeed it is, the most venerable of statutes, and thus their whole life was one of happy obedience to the law. So the patriarchs didn't need any instruction, they didn't need the written law, and he describes Abraham as himself a law and an unwritten statute. statute. So by equating the divine law of the Hebrew Bible with the divine law of Greco-Roman tradition, Philo transfers to biblical law the characteristic features of Greek divine or Greco-Roman divine law including what was a dominant motif in the Stoic formulation of the law, its static and inflexible, unchanging character um, because of its truth. He wrote, But Moses is alone in this, that his laws, firm, unshaken, immovable, stamped, as it were, with the seals of nature herself, remain secure from the day when they were first enacted to now, and we may hope that they will remain for all future ages as though immortal, so long as the sun and the moon and the whole heaven and universe exist. Right? There was no Deuteronomy saying that now the you know, sacrifices can only be offered in one place, even though before you did it another way. So Philo chooses to ignore significant biblical evidence of change and revision and historical development in divine law over the course of time. So Philo really internalized that Greco-Roman dichotomy between unwritten divine natural law which is allied with truth and which alone brings virtue and the written laws of states that do not and he asked whether his native constitution the Mosaic law which claimed to be divinely given actually possessed the qualities of divine laws understood by Greco-Roman divine law tradition and his answer was yes and then having identified the Mosaic law as the divine law of nature, he labored to demonstrate that it possessed those properties and those qualities of Greco-Roman natural law. It was eternal, it was unchanging, it was utterly rational and non-coercive. He says it contains, it's interesting, Moses only gave exhortations, there are no rewards and punishments. Everything, I don't, he didn't read Deuteronomy, I guess. Um, it's universal, it's not particular, and most important, it's conducive to rational perfection and virtue. So, the trouble with Philo is, though, <coughs> that when you describe the written Mosaic law as a kind of copy, a written copy of an archetypal law of nature, and one that is inferior, you're implying that it's inferior, right? He said it's easier and better to read it from nature. That's what the patriarchs did, and we should too. And so that implies the inferiority of the written Mosaic law. The, the, the Mosaic law, the written Mosaic law, only reinforces what we can learn more perfectly and directly from nature. It's a concession to those who have difficulty learning things from the law of nature. It's kind of a second best. And here we hear the echoes 
of Plato and some of the Greco-Roman thinkers who talk about written laws as a second best option that's necessary when you lose direct divine rule or when there's a scarcity of wise philosopher kings. So Philo responded to this cognitive dissonance um, that arouses from the confrontation of these two very different kinds of divine law by trying to enhance the reputation of biblical law, by identifying it with the classical notion of divine law. But I think paradoxically in doing so, he really undermines the status of the written Mosaic Code because he associates it with Greco-Roman ideas about written law, which are kind of negative. A second response really can't detain us here, and I want to be able to get to the rabbis. But the second response, just by way of contrast, would be that of Paul's. Paul was also a first century Jew. I think he also evaluated his native constitution, the Torah, against the ideal standard of divine law by Greco-Roman tradition. But unlike Philo, he concluded the Mosaic law doesn't possess the characteristics of natural divine law as as, uh, defined by Greco-Roman tradition. For Paul, the Mosaic law was the written constitution of a particular, um, particular laws. Um, It can't be the universal unwritten law of nature inscribed on the hearts of men, and therefore we can set it aside. So we've seen Philo and Paul, and as different as they are, in one way they are the same. They both accept this Greco-Roman dichotomy, right? They both accept and internalize this dichotomy of natural divine law and human positive law. And when they try to square that dichotomy with their native tradition of biblical law, they just make radically different choices. Philo identifies biblical law with Greco-Roman divine law and forces upon it all of the characteristics listed there in column A, particularly in its alliance with unchanging truth. And Paul makes the opposite move. He says the law of Moses possesses the characteristics of positive law and it's time to move on from it and to simply move to the law written on the heart. So the question is, what did the rabbis do? Did the rabbis experience this cognitive dissonance? Did they succumb to or resist the cultural pressure to apply to biblical law the characteristics of the natural or divine law as understood um, throughout the Hellenistic East of which they were a part? Did they do that in order to justify its sovereign authority? Or did they attribute different features to divine law? And if so, how did those features justify its sovereign authority? So specifically, the question that will occupy us is, is the divine law understood to conform to truth, whether an eternal, unchanging, and universal rational truth, as it does for Philo, or some other standard of truth, which might come out of rabbinic or biblical tradition? And if it doesn't, is that a problem? Does that undermine its sovereign authority? bunch of questions for you to think about. So those, those are the things I want you to think about as you look through these sources. So let me tell you a little bit about how I've, I've divided these sources. Um, the legal discussions, I have some of guys material as well, but these discussions, they're in Roman numerals 1 through 5. There's legal discussions 1 through 5 and then some stuff in 6. And they're going to get at the connection between law and truth. Do the rabbis, this is your question, do the rabbis posit a connection between the divine law and truth? Now the trouble is we don't have in rabbinic text a single term that captures something like the Greco-Roman conception of truth with a capital T. The word emet actually doesn't do it. Um, in a few contexts, the word emet does that, but in a lot of contexts, emet really means faithfulness, right? Um, much more than it means anything like a Greco-Roman notion of truth. So, I, you know, when, I, when I'm researching this topic, I don't have some nice handle that I can use to kind of access sources that deal with this, and I realize that I've had to think about different ways to measure 
truth, different kinds or different measures of truth. So I've come up with a number of different measures of truth, and the question is, does the law um, uh, cleave to those different measures of truth? So source number, Roman numeral one. In Roman numeral one, we're looking at cases that, um, in which we identify what I would call a formal truth. That is to say, what is the theoretically or formally correct legal answer? And usually the word for that is deen. But deen, right, according to the logical, theoretically, theoretically true law, the law should be one thing, right? And, and how powerful an idea is that? Is that important to the rabbis, right? This notion of a logically correct answer. What is their attitude or their attitudes, plural, towards the deen or the formally correct or true law when they're working out the practical halakha? So, you know what, let's just have like these two tables. That You would be responsible for making sure number one gets looked at, okay? Um, and then I'll, I'll tell you what to do when you finish one because you probably will have time to do something else. You can skip two and three from now. Those sources were all in the, in the article that was sent to you to be read before, but I put them here in case we wanted to refer to them at all. But those cases in two and three are dealing about the abrogation of Torah law. So the cases in two and three, this is another measure of truth, if you will, for determining law. In these cases, I think Torah law stands as the kind of criterion Against, with the rabbi, against which the rabbi's laws need to be measured. And what's interesting um, is that in those cases, they, they understand themselves to be able to deviate on occasion from Torah <coughs> law. Right? So there's a measure of truth in which they allow themselves to sort of step away from or deviate from um, the truth in working out the halakha. So then we get to number four. This is what I would call empirical truth. So we can have these two tables here, maybe looking at number, making sure you start with four. You start with four, then you can move on to other things. But the question is, what's the rabbinic attitude towards um, law when it deviates from just empirical facts? Like, what really is in the sense of just empirical facts? Okay? Is that a problem for them? Um, it's a single case, but it's complex. It's got weird, complex reactions in the Palestinian Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. So try to tease out the conflicting attitudes there. Um, the text in Roman number five, so the two tables at the end, just make sure that you take a look at that. These deal with another measure of truth, and this would be um, the standard of strict justice in a judicial case, right? As opposed to working out the <coughs> theoretical halakha, now we're talking about cases and being judged, and um, the standard of strict justice. And these texts contrast by true judgment, if you will, or strict justice, that is, um, judgment that determines who's liable, who's innocent, right? Um, they contrast that with arbitration, which is a process that settles disputes without determining who's really innocent and who's really guilty, right? It just tries to keep everybody happy and work something out so they all go home again. So what's the rabbinic attitude towards deviations from strict justice when we're judging cases? That's what's going on in five. The text in number six, these are agotic assessments of the value of truth in the context of divine judgment. So it'd be great if everybody looked at those. So when you're done with one and four and five, then move to six. And then if you have any time left over, you can pick anything else you want to do. So I've left the people here flanking me on either side. They have the freedom, but this way at least I know everything's covered by somebody. You could start with six if you wish and then go back and pick any of the other ones that you like. Um, Make sure in number six that you get to 13 and 16. So you have 17 minutes. (laughs) text in Roman number one. Does anyone from these two tables want to give us some idea of what's happening in these four texts? Because I've said a lot already. Doesn't have to just be these four people. If anyone else got a chance to look at the first four texts as well. 
No? Other tables, you might be choosing a spokesman while you're waiting. So, yes, go ahead, down here. <laughs> so uh, we did not compend the conclusion, but we got the distinction between and um, something that is just a better title for well. Um and we got ideas where you have the law and then you kind of have the square of the law and reading into maybe the intentionality of the law and then acting upon the intention as opposed to Okay, so do any of these give us the reason that you would set aside the formally correct answer and go for the better answer? Uh, well, actually, to the contrary, there was um, with the Venter Mara, the rebellious son, it just jumped into the idea that a daughter might very well reflect the concept of a rebellious son, but at the end of the day, the edict is that it can only apply to a son. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, so we'll come back to that. I'm glad you picked that one out. I'll say something about that in a minute. What about number four? What seems to be going on there in terms of why we would set aside the right answer for a better answer? On what basis? On what basis do we set aside the right answer for a better answer? They have barrels of wine, yeah. yeah. You're supposed to be a little more humane because they're pretty much... Okay, so the law is supposed to be doing moral critique. Right? The law may be correct, but that doesn't stop the rabbi from subjecting the law to a moral critique and deciding that there might be something better to do. Right? <coughs> so, these texts, the four that were in um, Roman numeral one, are cases where the rabbis point to a formally correct answer. They'll usually say badin, right? The deen, the formally correct answer. Um, but they're not constrained by it in determining what the halakha is. So, in the first case, badin, according to strict law, the freed slave should take precedence over the convert, um, but the order is reversed because in this case they actually do give us a reason. They say a curse attaches to the freed slave and so on. Um, the second case is a little more complicated. It is actually discussed in the article I gave you, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now, but essentially it's saying that badin, you know, the laws of sacrilege, um, uh, should apply to the ashes of the red heifer, but we've made a ruling that they don't, and there's a discussion in the Palestinian Talmud as to why they would do that. But again, it seems to be a pretty simple and unpro- unproblematic statement that the law should, by rights, formally, theoretically, logically be X, and we're going to rule Y for some reason. Case three is more interesting. Um, this is one because uh, that interests me because the deviation is attributed to God Himself, and this is the one I love. So case three is on page one. Um, where they read, Ben Sorer, right? And if a man has a stubborn and a rebellious son, they say, Ben, a son, not a daughter. It has been taught, Rabbi Shimon said, according to the strict law, right? But deen, it should be that a daughter comes within the scope of the law of the stubborn and rebellious child, since many frequent her in sin. But it's a divine decree. He wrote Ben there. He wrote Ben there, so it means a son and not a daughter. And this is wonderful. The irony here, of course, is the fact that the term Ben is sometimes used by the rabbis to be gender inclusive, precisely, and it's sometimes used by the rabbis to be gender exclusive, um, and sometimes to read women in or out of the law. So um, it's clearly a rabbinic choice, and yet Rabbi Shimon is pinning it on God, and saying God himself, in articulating the law, is deviating from natural or strict logic. Right? God himself deviates what should naturally or strictly logically be the law. This would be an impossible thing for a Stoic to say, right? because the natural law is the mind of God. Right? But the rabbis can say that. Um, so in these cases, they're maintaining a kind of rhetorical and conceptual distinction between the logically correct answer and a better answer. They're not always explicit about their 
motivations. Um, but in many other cases that I haven't brought here, they are more explicit about their motivations. The better answer is usually a better answer because it's a kinder answer or it's a more aspirational answer. Or it has certain social or pragmatic advantages. Um, in other words, it's better on utilitarian grounds or moral grounds. And we see this a little bit in the fourth case, as you um, mentioned. Um, this is a case where you have these porters who are negligent. They break the barrels of wine that they've been hired to move for um, Rabbabar Rathuna. <coughs> And so he seizes their garments, you know, as, as, as compensation. And they complain to Rav, and he says, give them back their garments. And he says, is that the law? Now, we have some manuscripts that have yes, and some manuscripts that don't have this word. It doesn't change it too much from my point of view. But it's, it's kind of interesting, because if you understand them to be saying yes, that is the law, because Proverbs says, follow the way, uh, you walk in the way of good men. And he says, and not only that, pay them. Pay them for their day's work. And Rabbi Baruchuna is, you know, shocked. Is what he's talking about? You know, is this the law? And again, some manuscripts haven't actually answered yes, because the verse continues and says, "And keep the path of the righteous." This would be a righteous thing to do. It's super erogatory. It's above and beyond what the you know, strictly logical halacha would demand. But it would be a really great thing for you to give these people the, the wages for that they did lose a day of working. Actually, after all, even though they caused damages to you. Um, so, you know, if he is saying yes, then he's implying that when we determine the law, we bring legal principles and moral aspirations into our consideration and our deliberation of what the law ought to be. That does constitute the law, which is, for those of you who know anything about Ronald Dworkin, that's a very Dworkinian way to do things, right? To interpret the law or determine the law um, by allowing legal principles and moral aspirations to inform um, how we read the rules, to give the best answer that we can give. And the best answer, by virtue of being the best answer, is the right answer. If the word yes isn't there, then he's simply saying, no, it's not the law, but it's what a good guy would do. And then we still have the same point. We still have the point that sometimes there's the correct answer, and then sometimes there's a better answer. And that's perhaps what you ought to do. Um, so in any event, the cases in, um, in the first section show us the rabbinic willingness to divorce truth in the sense of formal truth, right? Theoretically correct law from determining what the operative halakha should be. Um, and they're willing to adjust the law to ensure kind of a greater justice or compassion or equity. Now this notion of equitable adjustment of law, this is a very common notion um, and it's an important principle of Aristotle's actually. But according to Aristotle, the need for equity to balance or adjust the law is a feature of human legal systems precisely because they're human, precisely, precisely because they're inherently imperfect. It's impossible for humans to formulate a general rule or a law that will always in all circumstances be just. So of course we have equitable modifications of um, the law. That's characteristic of human law. And what's so wonderfully shocking about the rabbis is that they are saying that this happens to a divine law, equitable adjustment of the divine law. That would be incoherent in the Greco-Roman framework, right, or in a Stoic framework to talk about adjusting what should be an inflexible and, and unchanging and universally valid law. But the rabbis have a very different and a non-Stoic understanding. For them, stasis, right, remaining the same, is not perfection. A static and universal rule that's applied mechanistically could create havoc and suffering and it wouldn't deserve the name divine. Um, and that's an idea that they capture in a phrase, let the law cut through a mountain, right? This is a, a phrase they use critically. People who just let the law cut through a mountain, they just apply it mechanistically <coughs> and unthinkingly. For the rabbis, the perfection of the divine law revealed to Moses at Sinai lies in the fact that it is not static, but that it is responsive um, as demanded by particular circumstances. So you're all probably familiar with Mishnah Tractate Gitim, 
chapters four, uh, 4 and 5, we have a list of a bunch of ordinances where the formally correct law is adjusted for the sake of some moral good, for the sake of the social order, right? So if you have a slave who's freed by one of his two masters, by strict law, technically he's half free, but the rabbis compel the other um, master to free him because this is not a way for him to live, and they do this, um, so the right answer isn't always the best answer, and in their deliberations, the rabbis subject the law to a moral critique in order to mold it to be the best that it can be. And they evidently don't see this as impinging on the divinity of the law. They see it as demanded by the divinity of the law. What kind of divine law would create suffering? Um, so let's move on to look at... We're not going to really look at two and three. Those cases were covered in the article that I, I gave you, and they really are just showing um, attitudes towards... Um, another measure of correctness, right? Whether the law needs to match Torah law, but yeah. Sorry, I just have a quick question. Yeah. You say the rabbi is like this one. I know, group that's one done. homogenized group. I know. Yeah. Right. So yeah. terrible thing. Were there sects within it, or Absolutely. when you so when you say the rabbis, do you mean that there are some rabbis that are, are stoic, some that aren't, and then when you put them together, you have this system that's well, a mixture. Well, many of them are stoic. But anyway, um, yes, no, I know. but yes, there are definitely different voices. So, for example, in the article I read, I tried to be very, very careful to divide early, late Palestinian, Babylonian. I showed that at the early level, they're more tolerant of the idea of rabbinic enactments that abrogate or set aside Torah law. It's in the Babylonian context away from, I think, certain Hellenistic influences where you can have laws doing that, that this suddenly seemed very strange to them and they begin to create these revisionist histories and backtrack and not do that. So, yes, any responsible person not doing a 65-minute presentation would do all of those things that you're saying should be done because there are many conflicted voices. And, in fact, we will see some conflicting voices coming up when we look at the Yevamot text in number four. So that's a good example of how we do want to break this down and realize that rabbinic literature is very fraught and filled with tension. Um, I do still think that we find there are some ideas that we don't see overall in the Greco-Roman material, and that is a conception of divine laws having some of these characteristics of flexibility that would just be inconceivable in a Greco-Roman notion. doesn't mean every rabbi everywhere, but it's there, and it's loud, and it's dominant. So let's look at the, the text in number four, if we can, and... Two and three really are the ones that are discussed in, um, in the article that you got. Here we have a counterfactual ruling, or perhaps just we could say an erroneous court ruling. Someone from these two tables want to tell us what you found in these texts, and there are conflicting voices in these texts. Yes? So basically what we had was a case where on a word of two witnesses, a woman gets remarried to another husband, and the first husband comes back. Yeah, they so say to two witnesses that the first husband's dead. Okay. Uh, so the halacha itself says that we listen to the two witnesses, we accept their words as truth, and we let the woman get married to someone else. But if the husband comes back, that halacha conflicts with the empirical evidence in front of us. So what are we going to listen to? So it turns out, for the most part, the Babylonian rabbis seem to uh, accept this paradox and say that we ignore the empirical evidence and we accept the halacha as, as it is encoded that we listen to two witnesses and the woman remains married to the second husband. Um, the rabbis of Eretz Israel seem to have said that no, they, they really don't like the idea of there being a paradox and uh, empirical reality has to accord to totality with halacha and of course the woman cannot stay married to the second husband. So, so you, and your description and the, of the conflict is exactly right. The cast of characters is a little bit off just because they kind of tell fibs about each other. Right. So in the Palestinian Talmud they say that over there in Babylon they do this. But then in the Babylonian Talmud that's not what they do. And they say the same thing about the West and that's not... So it's confusing who does what. But you're absolutely right about what's at stake. 
It's just who does what and who do we believe about who does what? That's a little difficult. So absolutely, we have this case, two witnesses, a husband <coughs> dead, she remarries with court authorization. That's important, right? So she remarries with court authorization, um, and then her husband comes back. Do we allow her to, the, the ruling in the Mishnah is that she divorces both husbands. Now that's kind of interesting, because she doesn't simply go back to the first. The second, she requires... A, a divorce from the second. It is a valid, it is a legal marriage. So the court ruling, even though it was erroneous right, and counterfactual, it does have some legal validity because it has the power to cancel out the first marriage. She's got to divorce them both because she's married to two men at once. And she needs a get from the second one. It was a valid marriage. So it, it, law trumps facts, if you will, in creating that second marriage. But it doesn't trump it entirely because if it trumped it entirely, she would just stay married to the second, right? She would just stay married. It wouldn't be an issue. And that's what happens is that Rav, right, in the Talmuds, we learn that Rav tries to go the whole distance. And he says, he has this wonderful statement that um, if she remarries on the basis of two witnesses, so this is in the, in the year Shami first, then even if he, the first husband, comes back, they just say to him, no, sorry, you're not he. And that's it. She stays married to the second guy. That's a radical <coughs> assertion of the the power of law to create facts, even contrary to reality. It's a legal fiction. This you are not he is a legal fiction they're allowed to whip out, like, you know, corporations are people. Legal fiction <laughs> that we use. No, it's exactly what it is. And legal fictions were invented in two legal systems at roughly the same time in the history of the world. That was Roman law and Jewish law, right? They were the first to use legal fictions, these constructs that we just apply to certain cases and, and act as if those things are true, even if they are not. Okay, corporations aren't people, but we let them do a lot of the things people do financially because it's convenient to do that. So that's what he's doing. He's suggesting a legal fiction. We just say you're not in. She goes and she stays with the second one, and this is radical. And the Talmuds in their fuller discussion discuss this is radical, but they say, what are we going to do? We can't have agunot. Right? This is precisely to solve the problem of, of a chained woman, if you will. And then comes the mixed reception that you described. All right, and, and in, different, in the different Talmuds, they report it rather differently, but we see that gets a mixed reception. In the Palestinian Talmud, they say, okay, we'll follow Rav's law, but you know, we say to the second husband, you should know that all the children you're going to have in the eyes of heaven, they're all bastards and so on, right? So they, they scold people. They don't like this, but they're kind of willing to go along with it. But they tell a story in the Palestinian Talmud that in the Babylonian Talmud, they had to actually, you know, break out some corporal punishment to enforce this, to get people to follow this law because they didn't like it. Um, but according to the Babylonian Talmud, it's the Palestinians who are the ones who are having trouble with the law. So there's a great passage there. It says, um, they cite the teaching by Rav. Rav says that if the husband comes back, she doesn't have to leave the second husband. The law is strong enough to trump reality, empirical facts, empirical reality. She doesn't have to leave the second. And then the Talmud says, in the West, in Eretz Israel, they laughed at him. Her husband comes back. And there he stands. And you say... She stays with a second husband? What are you, nuts? Right? So they're uncomfortable with this idea of law um, not linking with um, reality. And so they, they resolve it by saying, Rav only met when she really, really, really doesn't recognize him. He didn't mean a legal fiction at all. So they disable the legal fiction in the Babylonian Talmud. They're not comfortable with it. But the point that I want to make here, and there are other cases that, that deal with this, is that the, the, uh, in, in, the, in rabbinic law in general, there are such things as legal fictions um, which, in which law does trump or overcome reality. This is a particularly fun case just because it's one where there's so, so much argument and discussion about it. So I, I like to bring this one. But certainly in the Palestinian Talmud, it seems to have been accepted even with protests 
in the Babylonian Talmud, they try to sort of, you know, rewrite it so it's not really a legal fiction, so that she just really doesn't recognize the guy. He has his credit cards, his passports, all things. She says, no, I'm sorry, you're missing the mole here. You know, it's, this is the return of Martin Gare case in, in the Talmud. That's why I like it so much. So rabbinic law in general does tolerate legal fictions. Um, at later levels, especially in the Babylonian Talmud, they are less comfortable with them, but we do see them happening. And so law can deviate even from empirical reality. That's another measure of truth, if you will, that we can use where they're again comfortable in allowing the law to deviate. Um, in number five, we have another measure of truth. This is the standard of strict justice in adversarial cases, right? Cases that come before a judge. So over there on those two tables, what, do you, what did you see going on in some of these texts? We also saw conflicting uh, voices. Uh-huh. Yes, very much so. One in the, in the first verse between Shimon Ben-Gamliel, yep. who said that arbitration seems to be a good thing. Yep. This, um, shalom, or Emmet Shalom. Uh-huh. And, um, yes, they use Emmet and Shalom. And seem to think that it's a sin. Right. So here's a perfect case of dueling voices, and this is what's thematized through both of these. See, phrase very but also in the Tosefta case. Dueling voices. One says arbitration is a horrible sin because you're not actually saying who's guilty and who's innocent. You're not actually deciding justice. You're just making people stop complaining and you're compromising and splitting the money and sending everybody home. And where's the justice in that? That's a sin before. And the other view, no, truth and peace. Zechariah, right? The verse from Zechariah says a judgment of truth and peace. And what's a judgment of truth and peace? That's arbitration, which is settling the issues and not worrying so much about labeling people as guilty or innocent. Anything else come out from the Tosefta case? I mean, I think that's really to a large extent what I hoped you would get out of that. So, you know, we can, I'm conscious of the time, so I want to make sure that we, we get to some of these. What about um, the text in number six? Now, these are agotic texts, which take up this theme also, but now in the context of divine justice. And it's really kind of interesting to see what do they think about truth in divine justice? Anyone? Hopefully, hopefully more than... Truth is to charity. Say that again? Truth is to be balanced with charity. Yeah, truth is something to be a little scared of, right? It's something to be a little scared of in the divine context. And we, we, were ho- we hope that God will balance it with charity or mercy, compassion, right? Any other comments here? Room to maneuver, right? Truth in the sense that it's strict and un- inflexible or uncompromising is a scary thing. <laughs> yes. It is objective. Uh huh. In what sense? Which text are you looking at in particular? The, the one from the line. Uh, oh yes. Oh, I love that. That that one's such a great one. The Genesis Rabbah, right? Yeah, Bereshit Rabbah, text yeah. uh, number fifteen. This is the one where God is coming to um, create human beings, and it's such a fantastic text because the idea here is. Again, truth is something to be feared in the context of divine judgment, and it's clear that human beings would never have been created at all if God followed the dictates of truth. Truth is saying, don't, you know, he's full of lies, right? And justice is saying he's full of unrighteousness and sin, don't create him. And God has to throw truth to the ground. He has to suppress truth in order to create human beings. Um, so the creation of humans and indeed their ongoing existence, if you will, really depends upon God's willingness to suppress the truth when judging them. Right, it's a really radical kind of idea. Um, in 
13, is that the one with the different times of day? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Right, so the, the three hours, that's a great one, right? Because for the first three hours of the day, he's studying Torah. For the second three hours of the day, God is judging. And so they talk about when it's, it's good to bring your prayers and so on, and they say bring them in the, uh, they talk about what time of day to bring them, and it's not a good idea to bring them when God is studying Torah. You don't want to bring your, your prayers for forgiveness when God's studying Torah, because Torah has been called truth. So when God is dealing with the truth, you're, you're in for it. You want to wait until the second three hours of the day when he's involved in judgment, because that implies that the, judgment, ju- the activity of judgment is by definition one that balances truth with other considerations mitigating circumstances, right? Thinking about the particularities of your situation or just simple mercy and compassion, right? So judgment is a much more complex notion, more like phronesis, if you will, the Greco-Roman notion of deliberation that isn't just worried about the strict theoretical application of the law. Um, so again, truth is uh, not, such a mitig- it's not such an unmitigated good in these texts. In 14, the famous passage about Jerusalem being destroyed because people gave judgments according to Dina Torah. Right? And they, and they asked, so what were they supposed to do? Give judgments through arbitration? And they said, no, but they should have stopped short of the strict law. And that phrase implies that the law is like a circle. It's a line. It's a line. And you can go right to the edge. If you transgress, you are, you're doing an azera. You're crossing over that line, right? So what do you want to do? You want to just stop short of it, not insist on your full rights always. Just pull back a little bit. Wave your rights sometimes. Don't be so demanding and wanting every exact little thing that comes to you from the law. Um, and then, let's see. 16, oh, 16 is fascinating. 16 talks about this writing of truth. This is so great. We have this phrase in Daniel which talks about a writing of truth. And so the rabbis in typical fashion say, what, does that mean that there's a writing that's not truth? A divine writing. A divine writing that's not truth? Right? What a great question. And at first is it Levi, I think, who's, who's sort of stuck and doesn't quite know what to do. And then he poses this question. When the text says, when the angel says a divine writing of truth, does that imply there's a divine writing that's not truth? And the answer is that there are two kinds of divine writing, right? Um, divine writing that's a, or a divine decree that's accompanied by an oath. Um, that's never an oath. That's, that's true. So true here has the sense of lasting. It's not a null. That's what the word truth in this context means. It's a very variable term in rabbinic literature. But that means that there are divine decrees and communications, those that aren't accompanied by an oath, that aren't eternal. Right? That, that aren't um, uh, unchanging and eternal. And then even this assertion that there are um, decrees that are, that are to which God swears by oath and that they are, are not annulled, even that is subject to further uh, weakening in, in what goes on. We see that God's oath to punish the sin of the house of Eli is modified by um, acts of loving kindness, Torah study, right? God is responsive to what human beings do and he's not held to some oath that he made. Um, and the Sugya even goes a step further and asserts that a divine decree against the congregation, even after it's sealed, it can still be torn up um, and utterly rescinded. So we have a very strong impression by the time we get to the end of this passage that divine statements are not only not necessarily or essentially in accord with the truth, but they're not necessarily eternal and unchanging. Humans can prevail upon God to modify even a sworn decree. Will you give me five more minutes? Mm-hmm. There's some really cool things. So, okay, so there's the great Agatic story in number seven. 
Um, and this is a dramatic illustration of this principle that I've just stated, I think. This is a story that depicts God and Moses in that climactic moment in the Golden Calf story, Exodus 32, one of the greatest stories in the whole Bible. This is where God has just um, you know, told Moses that he's done, he's through, the people have sinned, he's infuriated, he's going to wipe them out. He even offers to begin anew with Moses, and he says to Moses, stand aside, I'm going to wipe them out. Moses doesn't stand aside. In, in fact, the text says, so, and Moses implored, but it's important that this is the word that's being used, Moshe, he implored um, God not to destroy the people. So the Midrash punningly construes as the um, technical term for annulling a vow, right? Because in Numbers 30, verse 3, when it talks about um, annulling someone's vow or, ver- or word, it says, he will not annul his word. So, Vayachal Moshe, et Pnei Hashem, right? So, Moses, Yachal, God, what does that mean? And so the Midrash understands this to mean that God, that Moses absolved God of his previously taken vow that he would destroy anybody who committed idolatry because God is trapped, right? He's trapped by his own law. Exodus 22:19. it prescribed anyone who worships idols and even though he wishes desperately to forgive Israel. He can't do that without breaking his earlier promise. And so the Midrash even places that idea in God's mouth, right? That his, his decrees, his divine decrees should be eternal and inflexible. He says in the Midrash, I cannot, this is in, eight, no, this is in 17, um, he says, I cannot retract an oath which has proceeded from my mouth. And Moses has the answer. God, he asks, didn't you grant me the power to dissolve vows? After all, your law in Numbers 33 states, may I remind you, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath imposing an obligation on himself, he shall not break his pledge, lo yechal zvaro, meaning he himself may not break his pledge, but a properly vested authority may be petitioned to dissolve it for him. And since a good teacher always models his instructions to his students, and you have commanded us concerning the dissolution of vows, it's only right that you should undergo a dissolution of a vow as an instructive example to others. And thereupon Moses wrapped himself in the scholar's shawl and he sat like a sage and God comes to him petitioning him for dissolution of the vow. And what did he say to God? He said a difficult and astonishing thing. He said, do you regret your vow? God, do you regret your vow? Yes, said God, I regret the evil I plan to do. Right, there's the, the passage... I guess it's verse 14 in Exodus 32, and God <coughs> repented of the evil he had planned to do with Israel. So the Midrashis is picking up that line, that that was the act in which, that was the moment in which Moses released him of his vow. And Moses declares, your vow is released, and it's an astonishing portrait of God needing human intervention. God is trapped by his own decrees of sin and punishment, and he is released from them by the ingenious reasoning of a human, which raises the question, who and what is really sovereign, the law or the law's subjects. If the divine law doesn't necessarily and essentially conform to a fixed standard of truth but is subject to processes of moral reasoning that lead to its modification and its improvement, right, if it's not necessarily eternal um, but flexible and adaptable <coughs> to these circumstances of those that it governs, then surely those it governs hold the reins of power. Um, number 18 is just a Phonogotic text that plays a little bit with this idea. The context is the declaration of the calendar. Um, <coughs> it's like the famous passage in Rosh Hashanah. It's, um, it's not astronomical reality or mathematical calculation or even divine decree that establishes the calendar, but the human court. 
Um, and this is a great Agadah where, you know, the angels come to God and say, you know, so is this, are we setting up, is this the first day? What are you asking me for? You know, ask the court. They're the ones who determine. And when the court below sets up the tribunal and declares the first of the month, that's when the heavenly court declares the first of the month. Right? So, um, why is it, let me just sum up asking a few questions. Why is it that these texts attract I say our attention, but I'll say my attention. They attract my attention. Why do we, I hope you do too, experience a kind of delighted surprise um, and almost disbelief <coughs> when we read of conscious errors and deliberate deviations from the truth or the right answer in rabbinic law? Um, we're very accustomed to such a notion in secular systems of law. No one imagines for a moment that in Roman law or in American law, Legal statements are ontologically true statements. I don't really believe that a corporation is a person, although I grant you some people might. But the point is that it surprises us or it seems scandalous to us for this to happen in a system of divine law, right? We're used to this in, in human laws all the time. That, of course, you know, O.J. Simpson was acquitted. That doesn't mean he was innocent, right? We're used to that. <laughs> but this is a system of divine law. And so we somehow perceive this as scandalous because in the West, like it or not, all of us are heirs to the classical Greco-Roman tradition. And we've all been influenced to think that divine law, unlike human positive law, should somehow be grounded in an ontological reality and in truth. So what the rabbis are doing can seem scandalous to us, but I really think that's our problem um, because, like it or not, those of us educated in the West are heirs to that Greco-Roman uh, legacy and its conception of divine or natural law. But I think that conception of that divine law was not native to the rabbis, and I would argue that they implicitly resist or simply ignore the divine law, positive law dichotomy of Greco-Roman thought. It was a dichotomy that was cer certainly known to Jews, other Jews like Philo and Paul. They internalized it and they reacted in different ways. But biblical tradition located the deity not in static, uniform nature, but in history, intimately involved in and responsive to human activity. And the divine law of Israel is grounded in the divine will, though it also expresses divine wisdom. But its perfection is not diminished but constituted by the fact that it's particular, it's flexible, it's responsive, and on occasion multiform, rather than universal and static and ever uniform. And because they didn't embrace the Hellenistic ideal of a divine law that's static and unchanging, the rabbis, I think, felt little compunction about the ongoing adjustment of the divine law in response to changing historical circumstances. And that's a view that places the human subjects of the law in the driver's seat, what we end up with is a portrait of divine law that is, I think, unimaginable, indeed scandalous on a stoic understanding. And again, to the extent that we have imbibe those notions, we feel the scandal of the rabbinic position. For the stoic and for modern-day followers of the stoic idea, it's unimaginable that a divine law would be given to a particular people and responsive to the shifting conditions of human existence or that humans would take a leading role in its articulation. That would seem to undermine its sovereignty and establish them as sovereigns. And yet I think these are precisely the characteristics attributed by the rabbis to divine law. So often in the contemporary world, I'm actually going to say something relevant. I very rarely... That's beyond the 8th century. As my colleague Stephen Fraud says, and I love this, it's bad enough I have to live in the modern world. I don't want to have to study it. Talk about it. I'm actually going to allow myself to say something irrelevant because in the contemporary world, there are systems of divine law um, and systems of divine law often justify their divine law's claim to sovereignty 
on the basis of its often exclusive alliance with truth, which they would argue necessarily entails an inability to compromise or even to reason. And I think that leaves us in a very unhappy place. So it behooves us to ask, is that the only way for a system of divine law to stake its claim to its sovereignty, an alliance with inflexible, uncompromising truth that can tolerate no human interaction or modification or reasoning? And I would submit it's not. The characterization of divine law that equates divinity with static truth, with uncompromising absolutism and the absence of human agency, a characterization that we so easily and unthinkingly accept as just what divine law is, is actually the legacy of Greco-Roman culture filtered through Western Christian thought. And I submit that an alternative paradigm of divine law, a paradigm that doesn't (coughs) characterize divinity as static truth or divine law as an uncompromising (coughs) absolutism that erases human agency, a paradigm that might better serve divine law systems in the contemporary world is available in Jewish sources. So I'm going to leave you with these provocative questions, okay? What if the rabbis were right? What if biblical law was written not to prescribe an eternal fixed truth of some kind? What if biblical law was written in such a way as to challenge us to think, to consider what justice and equity actually are, and not to settle for the claim that they are found in or confined to prescriptive rules? What if biblical law was written in such a way as to encourage us to reason, to continually evaluate its claims, to disagree with it, and to change it? What if biblical law was written on the assumption that immersion in its modes of argumentation and instruction was intended to create respectful sparring partners for and critics of God? What if biblical law was written in such a way as to allow the human voice to eclipse the divine voice in its moral clarity and interpretive authority? I think the ancient rabbis believed it was. God didn't give a fixed and inflexible law to be mechanistically and mindlessly applied, but a set of teachings immersions in the subtleties of which should lead to the formation of autonomous and intelligent moral beings. And on this view, God's greatest success and pleasure is found when humans take it upon themselves to serve as his moral critics and to create from what they've been given something new and something greater. So thank you so much for letting me run a little bit over time. I'm so sorry.